I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Now, a motion picture so grand, so magnificent, and so vast, it spans 7,000 years. No way! Yes way! But it starts with Bill. I'm Bill S. Preston! Who was Joan of Arc? And Ted. Noah's wife? We're in danger of flunking most heinously tomorrow. A force from the future. Can we go anywhere we want at any time? You can do anything you want. Is putting history at their fingertips. Let's reach out and touch someone. They're traveling through time. How's it going, royal ugly dudes? Put them in the Iron Maiden. Excellent! Execute them. Bogus. How's it going, dude? And they're making a big impression. Historical babes. Now they're home. Everybody get together, remember who your buddy is. To trash the 20th century. We got a live one here. Keanu Reeves, Alex Winter, Napoleon. We're from history. Billy the Kid. Oh my God. Joan of Arc. Sigmund Freud. Tell me about your mother. You a musician? Beethoven. Genghis Khan! Abraham Lincoln. Party on, dudes! Socrates. George Carlin. We're history. If you guys are really us, what number are we thinking of? 69, dudes! <gasps> Bill and Ted's... Excellent! Excellent! Excellent adventure. Party on. Dude. Welcome to the first of a trio of movies covering a trilogy that spans time, space, and the afterlife that was made over a period of 32 years, and that, for the longest time, was just one popular movie and one unpopular sequel. But as of 2020, one of the most nonsensical years on record, the third film, Bill and Ted Face the Music, the picture was given a broader perspective. They were already unexpectedly profound beneath the layers of goofball, affable, air guitar shenanigans, but now they feel completed and are of appropriate gravity. And over the next few weeks, we are going to be delving into these hidden depths and discussing the more far-reaching philosophical ramifications of the continuum-spanning escapades of these bodacious dudes. Uh, I would suggest that we try and stay steer clear of Bill and Ted Face the Music spoilers for the first two shows just because people need a little bit of time to track it down and see it, because not this this film did not get seen in anywhere near the numbers it should. But I'm hoping it will be seen over time. In time, it will be seen. Everything will be all right. With us tonight from the Recorded Tomorrow Time Travel podcast are Jesse Ferguson. Hello, hello. And Jonathan Liu. Howdy. One of the first things that ever happened to get me and Jesse talking to each other, he uh, first emailed me asking about, you know, whether I might do a Donnie Darko show. And shortly afterwards, I did. I think that you commissioned that, didn't you? I, I did. That was several years later. But yeah. <laughs> OK, right. Um, but like the first thing you said, you started talking about time travel. And I, I think I cited Bill and Ted on the like on the level of the scale. I think I, I put primer at the end of the scale where it's like, OK, like ponderously realistic uh, whereas uh, Bill and Ted I was just like silly and don't think about it too much and you went ah 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 
And I was yep. like, okay. So yep. well, first off, the first question is actually, uh, why do you love Bill and Ted as much as you do? Because you really do. I do. I have mentioned on my show, on our show several times, and I think even on your show a couple of times mm-hmm. that uh, Bill and Ted is among my favorite time travel movies. And uh, part of it is because the mechanics are surprisingly consistent and surprisingly novel. They The characters use the mechanics in the way that I still have never seen uh, to this day. Um, part of it is just because it is so... Uh, wholesome and and fun and just full of empathy and kindness and and uh, it's just it's a great package a great movie um, that is silly and fun but also deep and wise and again in general surprisingly consistent with its rules i would be lying if i said that i love bill and ted because the time travel is good but the time travel being so good definitely contributes jonathan (laughs) uh i assume you also like bill and ted a hell of a lot i do um i will say that i don't have the uh, the same deep relationship with bill and ted that uh that jesse does um I I saw it um, when when I first saw Bill and Ted. Um, it had already been out. I think I got to see it on video, you know, sometime uh, either late high school or, or in college. Um, I had missed it the first time around. You know, a lot of my friends knew of it, and I'd hear quotes and things like that. Um, but you know, for whatever reason, it took me a while to to see it. You actually saw Bogus Journey first, right? Um, no, no. I but I, I did see Bogus Journey in the theaters. Um, right. Some so somehow I had seen Bogus Theater in the theater, but but uh, you know like I missed Bill and Ted in theaters. It's it's one that I I enjoyed, but I didn't really get the time travel at the time. Like the 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 ending scenes, um, I wasn't sure what was going on mm. there. And you know for for a long time I would say like I'm I'm a I'm a Back to the Future guy, um, even though admittedly the time travel and back to the future is all over the place Mm -hmm. um you know and uh but i think you know having having seen bill and ted again you know and thinking through like oh here's how it works and after you know having seen a lot more time travel movies and read a lot more time travel stories like i yeah i i agree with jesse i really appreciate the way that they that they use the time travel um proactively and not just like Mm -hmm. oh yeah we're gonna figure this out later like mm. I, I mean that that is it I, like they, they are able to know <laughs> we can figure this out later and it's already happened now and that sort of you know it, it's it's just a really um clever way to to do that and and i think yeah jesse's right like you don't see that being done in time travel movies yeah. um, stories generally like it's 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 always like after the fact they realize that this is you know a uh a fixed timeline. I literally had to write one so that I could see another implementation of this. I think uh, most filmmakers, it's, it's appropriate that you bring up Back to the Future. Firstly, because the original time travel of Back to the Future, as you folks with your time travel podcast will know, was the <laughs> nuclear fridge. They were going to get in a fridge oh, at the okay. nuclear testing site and be propelled back in time. <laughs> 
and the original uh, time travel means in Bill and Ted, it was originally called Bill and Ted's Time Van. Time, it was like time travel van, yeah. Okay. Exactly. So, <laughs> so they were going to get in a, a van and, and and race to the future and the past. But mm-hmm. this is this got has got to have been written after Back to the Future, and this was tossed out as like, no, this is going to be too much like Back to the Future. So it's almost right. like they went snuffling around in the uh, garbage bins outside of uh, Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis's shared apartment, and went ah. Time travel nuclear fridge. Why, that's a bit like a phone booth. And and then they they kind of swapped methods of um, of time travel in that regard. But that then leads to a Marty McFly's. You know, Marty, you're not thinking fourth dimensionally. Right, right. I have a real problem with that. Principally because most movie audiences have trouble thinking fourth dimensionally. So the reason oh. Bill and Ted is a bit confusing is. Most people can't get their heads around fourth dimensional time traveling. Uh, and I'm like, oh, I understand it completely. I'm like, no, actually, uh, it took me a long while as well. <laughs> and just like, if you go in watching, you know, mm-hmm. expecting this to be like surfer dudes and to not have your brain teased, you're going to be slightly blindsided by especially what happens at the end. Uh, so, with the best will in the world, <laughs> What you described as not great time travel, but consistent time travel. Can you explain roughly how it happens? In terms of like the chronology or just the mechanics? Uh, in, let's do both, shall we? Just to, just a <laughs> like as with Back to the Future, I made all of our listeners go cross-eyed ten years ago. So I think it's high time we did that again. I've, I've actually got like a really neat little potted four-point way that the film explains it without baffling the audience. Okay, so if, specialist. Let me, if I make my four points that I think covers everything you need to know about okay, the time travel cool. in Bill and Ted, and then you can expand on any of those points or if add more in between yeah. if you think that there's Sweet. more. But I think sure. if you if you stripped out most of the other sort of um, uh, covering of the mechanics, I think these four would sum up how it works in this movie. Okay. Okay. So the first one is uh, a little bit of narrative exposition whereby Rufus is sent back to uh, help the Wild Stallions stay together because Rufus is being sent back to ensure that something happens, not to change anything. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the... The second thing, which is actually kind of a significant bit later in the film, is when, and this is the only thing that I would say is directly expositionary, is when Rufus explains to Ted how his watch needs to be kept an eye on. That time is relative in terms of Bill and Ted as individuals. Time will continue to tick on for them no matter where they are. Okay. That's the second thing. And then the third thing is a call and response example that comes in two parts, which is Ted's dad looking for his keys and then Ted remembering later that it was him who took the keys, which tells us that those keys were always taken by Ted. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. And I think those four things explain the time travel mechanic adequately, although obviously there are other things that underline them. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty good summation. Uh, I think if we were to put this in, uh, like, try to put it into clinical terms, this is an example of what we call fixed thread, which is the sense that there is one timeline and anything that a time traveler might do is already being reflected in 
in the time in the sense that if you think of a if you think of a thread the timeline is actually that thread like looping around itself in different parts and then we're seeing when we traverse through it we are seeing the uh you know, the effects of that and just sort of shifting perspectives as we go through. For a movie reference, that would be the uh, Prisoner of Azkaban where Harry exactly. Potter is able to throw yep. a stone at the back of his own head. <clears throat> right. Yep. And, I, but I he always could... got hit by that stone that was always thrown by him. Right. He right. literally says, I knew I could cast the Patronus this time because I had already done it. And that's exactly... Oh the logic here and we are ignoring all the time travel of the cursed child where actually the timeline gets changed <laughs> exactly exactly yes, yes. <laughs> that there was a reason we haven't most... actually talked about harry potter on our show yet ah. there's a that that was one of the the frustrating things to me about reading the cursed child was this is supposed to be the same device that hermione uses mm -hmm. and yet it worked completely differently Right. <laughs> it's all about alternate timelines and the way that things that you do now change change the timeline. Which, mm -hmm. yeah, I think um, it's been agreed upon that the moment that Joe finished writing the Deathly Hallows, she went absolutely balmy and then never came back. So, right. yep. <clears throat> um, continue. Uh, I I did want to mention the 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 watch. Yeah, oh, the God. the watch is is probably the one sticking point in. Um, Bill mm -hmm. and Ted that, that is don't forget to wind your watch. Right. The 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 idea that you can travel through time and yet you can't jump back to earlier in San Dimas and have more time to prepare your presentation is is the right. one piece that is just kind of a um I feel like kind of wedged in their time travel mechanic mm -hmm. that that is is sort of irritating when it appears in other places, um, but you know it does it does allow for the you know the, the funny joke where Ted reminds himself to wind his watch when he sees himself at the beginning of the movie, and and yet still forgets to wind his watch because he's always forgotten to wind his watch because that's hey, what happened the first time. I I will also say that it it I when I was watching it last night it occurred to me that without the without the impending deadline without the watch that was mm -hmm. saying you have to be back in 2 hours we wouldn't have remember the trash can we wouldn't have we can go back and do it later mm -hmm. because the whole point of that was the argument was if only we could go back and steal my dad's keys but we don't have time okay well let's do it later Right. All the time and, I want. I got a time machine. But that's right. that's part of the beauty of it because what it, mm -hmm. what that tells you is that you can only do things right with hindsight. In, yep. in fact, no matter how much time you've got to prepare, you're not going to be able to do it in advance because you don't know what's coming. Which is right. why when they get to the end and they troop these royal historical dudes onto the stage, the lighting all works perfectly as does the music they haven't had time to prepare for this they just run from the police station straight to the presentation which mm -hmm. leads me to believe that if they turned to the left and were like dude who's running the lights here you would see future bill and ted going it's okay dudes we got this they are would. doing their own show mm -hmm. but they could only uh, do it because they'd already done it <laughs> yep and uh, Ed Solomon actually confirmed that in an interview a few nice. years ago. Okay, yeah, cool. that that it was future Bill and Ted 
who were running the lights and the music yeah. and everything. They even the, leave the themselves thing, messages on the uh, uh, the the tape, don't they? The, the uh, on the on the fax thing. machine. The fax yeah. machine, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of ways that we have interpreted the watch a couple of times because mm-hmm. on the surface it looks like it it just kind of doesn't work or it breaks the rules or it. It, it maybe goes against the precedent that's already set in the sense that we have a time machine. We should always be go back. We should be able to go back to 2.45 p.m. yesterday mm-hmm. from anywhere, from any when. Um, but a couple of ways to interpret that are the, the, the Occam's razor answer, which is that Rufus just doesn't quite understand how time <laughs> travel works. And in, mm-hmm. in fact, as we'll see in later movies, the... It seems like throughout this trilogy, Bill and Ted are, in fact, the only two people in the known universe who thoroughly understand how time travel works. <laughs> uh, That's why the they're the way, two great ones. Their yeah, minds exactly. are that open. <laughs> exactly. They're the only ones that really think fourth dimensionally. The Which, actually, that term is flawed, and we can talk about that right. later <laughs> off, off air if you want to. But um, the other way is if you think about it a little bit more uh, philosophically or existentially, the, the and this is something that we talked about on our episode from a couple of months ago, the problem with infinite time travel is that it is easy to get lost. It is easy to forget yourself and forget that you have a deadline and run around history forever. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the watch is a way of keeping them on course. Mm-hmm. Um, in if we just a literal we, narrative if, device. Exactly. If we think of the phone booth as the ship through you know time, which is a lake. Thank you, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> then the watch is their compass and it is the thing that is keeping them on track and, and keeping them from forgetting basically when they came from. And this is what I mean by current time is relative to Ted because Ted is the one wearing the watch. The, the booth will always pull him back to his current time, which is how, Mm. which is kind of in line with his chronological aging. Um, Right. And the aging is a good point, too. It, it wouldn't right. make sense. Like They could theoretically run around history for two years, traveling and picking up historical figures and planning their perfect report and all of that. But then they would come back to San Dimas, 1988, and be They'd 20 be years, years old. Older, yeah. Exactly. At least Ted would be able to I opt mean... out of military academy at that point, <laughs> being older than 18. <laughs> Which, by the way, he would be in a few months' time anyway. But this does actually resolve that thing that we were watching the other day about Interstellar and the two things that this, the pacing of this doesn't fit with Mm -hmm. the pacing of that. Yeah. But if this is happening, then this other thing has to keep up with that. There's also an almost throwaway line at the beginning that happens to also kind of dictate the entire film, and it might break all the time travel or it might make all the time travel, which is when one of the elders says, it is time, their separation is almost upon them, which suggests Mm. that if Rufus didn't, go back and abide by doing what he was always supposed to do, which is to keep the timeline fixed Mm -hmm. and straight, uh, then Ted would be sent to military academy, creating an alternate timeline, which Mm -hmm. might damage the future, which I think is possibly the basis of uh, time travel in Donnie Darko. And that, that is the piece where, you know, again, when Jesse says, maybe Rufus doesn't exactly understand how time travel works. Mm. You know, you do wonder if in the future, 
if if this is in fact you know a timeline that is fixed and everything that will happen due to time travel has already happened you know then then they actually should know historically that this is the time when rufus goes back and saves the thing mm -hmm. but rufus doesn't seem to know that like rufus seems right. to think that if i don't go back the timeline falls apart we don't get this glorious future that we have hmm. when in fact you know he does have to go back but he's already been back like mm -hmm. in history he's already been there because that's how they got to this future to begin with are you cross-eyed yet folks <laughs> <laughs> It would have made more sense, and th this piece would have been alleviated. Like, my gripe with that would have been alleviated, because I thought the same thing. If instead of saying, it is time, you have to go back now, or things will be broken. Hmm. If they had started this with, Rufus, you have been training for this your entire life. Are you ready? Yeah. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that... Um... They, they, the language used. It is time. Their separation is almost upon them. That refers to past tense events in the mm. present tense, as though they are approaching. Which is like mm. me saying Queen Elizabeth I is about to go through her coronation. She is taking her first steps out of the carriage, about something that happened 430 years ago. Yeah, mm -hmm. it, it implies a really weird uh, temporal correlation between. 700 years in the future and today that is sort of in lockstep it's a lot of a lot of things do that um you know our favorite punching bag looper does that all the time and i hate it uh, and even like looper trips over itself yeah looper especially with what happens to paul paul dano that's mm, yeah. like wait it what sets, it sets things up that negate things that have already happened did i come yeah. on your show to talk about looper i can't recall you you came on my show to talk about paradoxes and Looper definitely came up. Yeah, we yeah. ranted about that. I remember that. Yeah. It was fun. Uh, folks, check down <laughs> that episode one, and then listen was, to all the rest. It was it was a lot of fun. Uh, another one that does that to to bring back a potential bad memory of my time on this show was Highlander Two, oh, where yes. he literally has he like he's watching the events unfold on like a television. Um, and has been doing for thousands of years. Right, supposedly what a boring ass job. Uh, Just watching Immortal Big Brother. Oh, good. This is where uh, Connor McLeod gets accused of being a witch. Um, <laughs> this is my favorite part. <laughs> but we could feasibly say that those three, the trio, I'm going to call them, the ones in, in the future, possess even deeper knowledge of time than we do. So their observation of time as something that is taking place all at once gives them an almost Dr. Manhattan perspective. Mm. Could be. There's certainly, it's certainly likely that since time travel is key to the future's existence in the way, the way it is, that they definitely get it more than a 1988 movie audience. Well, yes. Or it, and but at least somebody does. So the, the, their separation is imminent could relate more to our awareness of their separation is, is now. We need to act while mm. it's in our minds. Mm -hmm. mm. Or it could just have been a, a line that never got changed in the script. And it was like, well, wait a minute, dude, he just says their separation is imminent. You know, I also tied that this is similar to the watch, right? In in the way that, you know, Ted's time is, is tied somehow chronologically, mm. 
you know, biologically to to his actual San Dimas time where he belongs. You know, it could be there are also these parallel streams where, all right, this is the time when we are able to travel to this particular moment in San Dimas history. Hmm. Right. Actually, thinking about it, um, we used the P word just now. I don't think there's a single moment in this trilogy, all three films of which involve time travel fairly heavily, uh, wherein the word paradox is used. It's almost like a paradox can't exist in this universe because no. of the the rules that, that do exist. Because everything that's going to happen has already will have happened. Hmm. Right, exactly. And I think in our paradox episode, we talked about that. We were like, all the different reasons and, and really in any, honestly, in any methodology, if you follow your own rules, paradoxes shouldn't happen. Hmm. And... It, it, and that's fine. Which um, means poor <laughs> sit-up champion Chuck Denomalous was always going to lose. Yep. He trained his entire life for that moment. He sure did. And another gun. Right. Similarly, while Bill and Ted might seem simple or even not very clever, they are arguably, in fact, possessed of a strange wisdom. Explain how. We've already mentioned that they're the only people in the known universe who understand time travel. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly they are the least... only people who have observed time travel. Right. Uh, but even still, they, they seem to have this fundamental understanding of of humanity and of people. And they always seem to know exactly what to say and what to do to get the reaction out of people that they want. Mm. History teacher and uh, overbearing father notwithstanding. But mm. like they, you know, they they approach Sigmund Freud, I guess they just lasso him. But like when they're going through and picking up all of these different people. <laughs> they, they could they, never have convinced him in words to do that. <laughs> Technically exactly. Billy lassoes Sigmund Freud and Genghis Khan grabs Lincoln for them, I think. Yeah, Genghis Khan grabs Lincoln, but like when they're going to get Genghis Khan, mm. they lure him in with a Twinkie. Oh, when they're yes, going of to course. get when they're going to get Joan of Arc, Ted literally just reaches his hand down like he was God. Yeah. And <laughs> well, he does look and, quite angelic at that point. And, Even actually thinking about up. it, Keanu Reeves turned into an angel at the end of Devil's Advocate. <laughs> there you go. He's got angel experience. Absolutely. It's it's all part of the shared Keanu verse. Mm, right. From a philosophical perspective, I would say that a good bit of that is to do with the f it's to do with how they approach the world. And I've actually I, I would key this in with Taoism, in particular uh, the Tao of Pooh, which I don't know if anybody's read that. Um, it's an interpretation of Taoism through the lens of Winnie the Pooh, and it's brilliant. If you haven't read it, read it. It's great. I, I love it already. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but it's it's to do with the um, like the sacredness of just being and being whatever you are and not struggling against the flow of the world to try and change what you are. And I would say that one of the reasons why so many things seem to go Bill and Ted's way and why what they do to get things to come out the way they want them to goes so well for them most of the time is because they are not actually trying that hard to make things go a specific way they just they do what they do and they take the, the responses as they come and kind of roll with the punches mm -hmm. and it's it, there's this sort of i mean i i saw this film um when I, I must have been in my my very early teens maybe 12 or or sometime around that age 
and I have always loved it. And part of why is because the way these guys behave, there is nothing entitled or self-important about them. Mm-hmm. And whenever something happens that is not what they intended or is, is not what they were hoping for, then the way they express that is either, whoa, like surprise, or <laughs> bogus, like they're annoyed, but there's no tantrums about it that you know they don't they don't react as though we should have had it happen a certain way and it didn't and now we're going to get angry about that which just wastes time they don't have right so they just have this incredible resilience about them and and this unshakable faith that if they just carry on being themselves things will work out eventually and part of that is because they go to the future and see how things turn out so how (laughs) can they not have unerring faith in in how that's going to play out in the end and the um the interview with the two guys who wrote the script ed Mm -hmm. solomon and and the other chris matheson thank you yes Um, One line that they said in relation to this really stuck with me, and that was that part of what this is about and and part of how Bill and Ted's characters developed was around the concept of the excellence of experiences, even the bogus ones. Like everything Mm -hmm. that happens to them is still something that they welcome and, and enjoy the fact that they have experienced it, even if it was bad. And you can see... Like you, that is perfectly exemplified. That's a great take, Sharon. I love it, and it's perfectly exemplified by just how often, if you watch it, if you pay attention, Ted's reaction to what's going on and some new challenge that he faces is just to shrug and nod. Mm -hmm. And you'll see, like even at, at the very end, even Bill can throw him for a loop this way, but he just rolls with it. Where he says, you know, Bill's they're given their presentation and Socrates doesn't speak any English, so Ted's going to be his translator. And Ted's just like, oh, okay. okay. And then does it. <laughs> and just that, that, that resilience, that persistence, and the ability to just roll with whatever happens is is wonderful. And you put it beautifully. Thank you, Sharon. You're welcome. Yeah, because I was just going to mention, you know, like, compare it to Kung Fu Panda when he finally <laughs> learns to, to, uh, to flow, you know, but with the with the raindrop, mm. but, yeah, yeah, same, you know, same. That, that seems less profound yeah. now. <laughs> there, there is there is no secret ingredient. Absolutely, yeah. And there's there's two um, really good examples of this actually. In the um, there's a, there's a point where the they've turned up. They're trying to convince themselves to listen to Rufus and and go and do the history project this way. And they say something which, again, on reflection, especially considering that this came on the back end of the 80s, this line is now, to me, incredibly profound because they are completely baffled by a standard state of mind that many people live in, particularly in the 80s, which is, why would we lie to ourselves? People Mm -hmm. lie to themselves all the, the goddamn time. time. But they can't even get their yeah. heads around that. Like, why would you even do that? And the other thing is that they are absolutely incapable of being anybody but themselves. When they are confronted right. by the royal ugly dudes, how do they introduce themselves? I am the Earl of Preston. And, and I, I am, am the Duke, Duke of Ted. 
they can't they they can't be anybody but themselves even when they mm-hmm. don't know who that is because then when they go to the future and everybody's like it's you they're like yeah it's us who are, are we, we? Who are we? <laughs> <laughs> and i think it's that 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 groundedness and that you know base base empathy that it just it it gives these this trilogy so much heart and just makes me want to come back again and again. And I've, I've talked about before, like it permeates the entire series. My favorite Bill and Ted movie is the last one that I saw. Yeah. Yeah. Because of, because of all of, because of all of this. So great. The only true wisdom consists in knowing that you know nothing. That's us, dude. Oh yeah. Let's bag him. Yeah. How's it going? I'm Bill. This is Ted. We're from the future. Socrates. Mm. Now what? Philosophize with him. All we are is dust in the wind, dude. Dust? Wind. Dude. Ah. Ah. He makes. The Lincoln Conundrum. In this film, Bill and Ted snatch out of time a number of historical figures including Genghis Khan, Socrates, Joan of Arc, Napoleon Bonaparte, Ludwig van Beethoven, Billy the Kid, Sigmund Freud, and Abraham Lincoln. However, while most of the rest of these figures could be returned to their respective times and places and continue their lives, Lincoln, for me, stands alone, insofar as he was president of America at the time that he was snatched away to the future in 1863. He had two years of life and presidency left. He was in the middle of the Civil War. And I would posit that unlike the rest of them, an awareness of America in 1988 would most definitely influence his actions. I call this the Lincoln Conundrum. Speculatively, what might have been the repercussions, do you suppose? According to the way time travel works in the Bill and Ted movies, Lincoln always had been to Sandimus in 1988 Mm -hmm. and returned to his own time. We just didn't know that. To me, the conundrum is if you were Bill and Ted and you brought Lincoln to, to our present, would you feel like you needed to return him knowing his 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 history this reminds me of the beginning of Red Dwarf Season 7, where they prevent the assassination of JFK, leading to a dark alternate timeline, and then they have to snatch JFK from that dark timeline, bring him back to the Grousey Knoll, so that he can shoot himself. And at the same time, because we know that Lincoln was shot, he always had, like, something would have happened that he would have been returned to his time. I mean, well, the like, other option we're assuming like, that he would be returned to his time because otherwise that would create a major paradox. Right. Otherwise, otherwise, historically, he would have gone missing. Mm-hmm. And, and we can't no use one would the P word in this. What would have happened? Exactly. Right. So the fact that the fact that he was that we have historical record of him being shot and, you know, of the Emancipation Proclamation, I I would like to posit that may and, and I this is me not being a history buff, but. Uh, I would like to think that being able to see San Dimas and see the diversity there and seeing, oh, we have a black teacher teaching white kids 
all of this stuff would have potentially maybe uh, informed on his experiences to go back and then say, this is important. This is this is the future, because, I mean, even Lincoln has like there are records of Lincoln saying that he's like the Emancipation Proclamation was a. It was a political move. It was something it wasn't necessarily something that he he still felt that whites were superior to blacks, but he did it because it was the right because it was the like a legal thing that should be done. He he didn't feel that that we should be that we should be uh, segregating or or treating them differently in the eyes of the law. But I would like to think that maybe coming back and seeing the all of this diversity maybe would have changed his mind on that and could have sort of ushered ushered that thinking like shifted that thinking a little bit further and uh, made him fight that much harder for it Mm. and possibly given him a little bit of that faith in the future that bill and ted Mm -hmm. have because he'd seen Mm. that it happens exactly this is inevitable Mm -hmm. i'm just gonna push on and be on the right side of that Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter what happens to me afterwards mm-hmm. because, because I know that this, the important part. Yeah. this will mm-hmm. work. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. And I, I think um, when me and Alex were talking about this last night, I, I did agree that Lincoln is probably a, the only one of them who would have the opportunity and the ability to make significant changes to their own personal um, history to, to make things right. go a specific way because... Uh, Socrates, Genghis Khan and Joan of Arc have both a longer period of time between their place in history and current time and language Mm -hmm. barriers preventing them from taking too much knowledge back apart Um, from a you know rigorous calisthenic routine exactly yeah. which, which frankly i mean you know <laughs> making human bodies a little bit more tough and resilient a little bit earlier that's fine you know sure <laughs> no no issues there and if you look at, at billy sigmund freud and i would say to an extent napoleon they are self-important enough that they would potentially take a limited interest in things that didn't have a direct impact on them personally billy you are dealing with the oddity of time travel with the greatest of ease. I love that line. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, I was under the impression because uh, of his experiences with, uh, well, he actually laid out his plan uh, that he was going to have a terrible victory in Russia. Avec water slide that Napoleon would perhaps change his <laughs> tactics at the moment that he got back (laughs) and that maybe they were helping build that slightly different future where things worked out for the better and napoleon was slightly less of a dick uh let's not go crazy i don't know if i'd go that far (laughs) it it is worth noting that historically napoleon did lose so maybe it's because he went to San Dimas and then came back and, and tried decided to build water that, slides. Yeah. And you can even say like, Ted's even like, I don't think this is going to work, dude. So maybe it didn't. It does occur to me that, that the most humane thing they could have done for Lincoln is, is to pull him out just before he dies. Mm. And then not take him back. And then, and then, they can either, you know, let him live out his life in San Dimas and take him back later 
or they could fake his death because you know I'm sure you could make a a uh, a dead Lincoln that was very convincing for the people of his time and go back and put that there and that would not break the timeline. You're describing a benevolent version of the Emilio Estevez Mick Jagger film Free Jack. That's true. Oh my god, I just had a thought. What if John Wilkes Booth was <laughs> there as a tourist through that goddamn company in the in the don't step on a butterfly or you destroy the world store oh, oh yeah sound, sound of thunder yep. yeah sound of like thunder. i really want to shoot a president okay right we need to go to this place at this time 2019 wow. no wait 2017 <laughs> january <Yeah. laughs> Right, wait, 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 hold it. Hold it. Okay, his hand is up, and now! Now! <laughs> <laughs> is something you can't understand. There's a, there's a book, I'm trying to remember, uh, oh man, we've talked about it, Jonathan, and I can't remember what it's called, but it's a, it's a fixed thread time travel, but it's a like post-apocalyptic future and they use time travel to basically scavenge supplies from the past from like yes. from like sinking ships and uh you know buildings that are about to explode and things like that they go in a few minutes before and raid everything they can and take take out so that nothing is 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 missing mm. and it uh, seems like that would also be a good candidate for for something like that like i i need to you know i i like you said i really want to shoot a president well okay let's go to one that's about to get shot anyway and oh weird why were there two bullets in there <laughs> so it's a time time salvager time salvager is yeah the one. yeah He's, uh, you know, it's like, oh, we, you know, our our spaceship needed this reactor. Yeah, well, partly is, yeah, it's this, this you know, future where resources are, are running out. But they're like, okay, I really need this reactor. And so they jump into, you know, a ship, a spaceship that they knew was historically was destroyed at this moment. And they pull out the reactor, you know, and jump back to their present right before it you know, it gets blown to bits. And so no one knew that, you know, the ship didn't have the reactor. Although I kept wondering, like, what if you removing the reactor was the reason that this thing blew up in the first place? <laughs> they kind of needed that to get away, but they couldn't because, you know, their engines died. We're, we're way off topic now. <laughs> as much fun as the film is, the reason it won the top spot in our 10 possible futures episode, and if you folks haven't listened to that, I heartily recommend you do as an immediately after this one it was as hard going at times because we started with the worst possible futures but we worked our way up to the best and uh it was released at a time when a lot of us were really goddamn worried about the future and a lot of us still are so uh it might it might help uh but it won at the very tippity top and i want to ask us to reiterate the why of that? Why would placing uh, the potential of universal communication upon these two great ones make for such a significant aspect of this movie? It's you. Yeah. It's us. What do we know of this future that makes it so worth striving for, I suppose? Dream. We love.
has well, empathy know. in it. See, I was just gonna make a joke. What I, say? <laughs> I was gonna say that I was gonna say that we know that the air is clean, the water is clean, and even the dirt is clean, and that bowling averages are way up and mini golf scores are way down. And really, that's what's important. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if you're Napoleon, he was pissed. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, your anyway, bowling scores are way up because Napoleon keeps cheating all the time. Oh, see, they did change the future. <laughs> and they have the most excellent water slides. They, yes. well, again, that's the clue. Yes, the excellent water slides. I don't think them. he did build a giant series of water slides outside of Russia and as such created a sense of harmony that way. Because remember, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure was supposed to be a one-off. It was supposed right. to be entirely self-contained, and, uh, you know, we, we don't know that uh, that the future that they now exist in because of what they've been doing, um, you know, isn't, you know, heartily informed by the, the water slides, the calisthenics, and maybe Sigmund Freud being a bit less of a douchebag. <laughs> and Socrates as well, apparently he was something of a misogynist. I think the uh, I, I think that Napoleon built all these water slides, and then they were they were lost to time and buried in in the rubble <laughs> of his lives. And and then uh, in the future, they they, they dig them up them. and find them, and were like these water slides are incredible. The, the Napoleon was a genius, and we need to do, <laughs> we need to we need to institute these, and and yeah, now we have Waterloo too. Which I did not notice until I watched it last night that they actually do say Waterloop. It's not Waterloo like I thought it was all these years. Ah, Napoleon there, and his Waterloop. Yeah. Nice. There's a great. Uh, I, I really enjoyed. There, there was a, a Twitter thread recently <laughs> yeah. about about that very thing because you know people were trying to uh, correct, trying to correct, correct Solomon, and say no, it's Waterloo. He's like. If only we could ask the writer. He's like, I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure the writer is on Twitter. We should ask him. Um, but but then also he admitted, you know, Waterloo would have, like, they, they, someone said, well, why is it called Waterloo if there's no loops? And he was like, you're right. We should go back and fix that. And someone said, <laughs> how can you go back and fix it? Also not realizing that, you know, we're, we're talking about time travel here. Mm, yeah. Absolutely. Get in the booth. <laughs> But back to your point, Sharon, it is like empathy is the key to oh. this future. It is it, it is the key to this future and it is the key to this franchise. I mean, the 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 famous words of Bill and Ted that are sort of immortalized in everything are be, be excellent, excellent to, to each, each other. Mm-hmm. And that is the like that that is the cornerstone of this foundation of 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 this civilization. And we can assume that it permeates Bill and Ted's music because that's the kind of dudes that they are. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's gonna be it's it's going to be that united that uniting factor that this super popular band uh will will create all of this music that everyone loves and that teaches empathy and potentially use their political influence or their their fame and clout to do good in the world because it would never occur to them to do anything else. Mm. 
And the uh, the addition of the party on dudes as well, which has always kind of come across as a little bit of a just an afterthought because Ted couldn't mm-hmm. think of anything to say. Um, <laughs> but I actually think if you take it, if you take this statement as a whole, the party on dudes part is actually quite important because be excellent to each other could potentially result in people thinking well, that you have to martyr yourself, you have to be like mm-hmm. constantly bending over backwards to make sure that everybody else is okay and and completely neglecting your own needs but yeah but the party on part means while you're being excellent to everyone else you also have to be excellent to yourself exactly mm-hmm. also the party on suggests you're already having a party yeah. you must simply <laughs> resume that party now that <laughs> you've reinforced awesome. the being Let's excellent to each other yep. yeah and i would say yep. as well that the impact that their their actions have not just on the future but on the past by virtue of them bringing these historical personages forward in time and then returning them to their own uh, their own points in history mm-hmm. is unusual in that they are not imposing their own perspective on the past they are asking for the opinion and perspective of people from the past on their present they are right they are fundamentally uh, the point of what they're doing is looking for other people's viewpoints and mm-hmm. wouldn't the world be a better place if more people did that on a daily basis oh jeez <laughs> <laughs> Also, that we actually get to see this uh, version of the future, which uh, looks quite different in all three films. But um, right. mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you've got this. All that changes is the aesthetic. <laughs> yeah, you've got this central trio, which um, I didn't realize until more recent years. You've got a man, a woman, and somebody of indeterminate gender. True. In that trio, um, you've uh, what the the guy in the middle is black and has this. You know, amazing hair. So that's probably why I didn't notice <laughs> so everyone good. else because I was looking at that hair all the time. <laughs> but um, then, when you like look at the, uh, the the kids that come out and just sort of like um, stand there quietly watching them, there's a slightly culty air about it. But there's also uh, a peacefulness, which again comes with a cult. Uh, but um, <laughs> they're kind of gender mashed and and ethnicity mashed, and there's there, there aren't enough people who aren't Caucasian there, but there's right. a gen- a general feeling of kind of sharing everything out. Mm. Yeah, there's repeated patterns in the clothes. There's uh, very much a mix. There's not like these are the girls' clothes mm. and these are the boys' clothes. There's lots of different right. styles and accessories that appear on different people. And... and if you go too far down that one direction, you end up with homogeneity. But it also feels like you can't really follow in the footsteps of um, dudes who are that into metal and just everything becomes homogenous. There's there's just so much <laughs> variety in the music. And especially as we go on and the story deepens and thickens, mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of layers of texture to be had. And it feels like this is just the very tippity top of the surface of the future that we were seeing there. Mm. Yeah, like this is the administration building. Mm. So, so maybe so, they're yeah. all wearing silver because that just happens to be the uniform in here. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. Like that's that's the equivalent of wearing a suit to work in yeah. you know in Congress. Mm. Which if, if this is if these are the leaders, this is effectively that would you make know, sense. Yeah, the Congress, yeah. right? So this is their dress uniform, and it, it is also worth noting that. And we talk about this a little bit in the future episode, but there are also don't seem to be any you know, brands or advertisements mm. or anything like that. Everything is is very, not necessarily samey, but you can tell that 
there was a creative influence in everything here, but it wasn't a, there doesn't seem to be a lot of cynicism in what anybody is wearing or doing or any of the, anything, any of the decorations on the walls or anything like that. Mm. It's all very, it's very earnest if clinical. This reinforces the philosophy that capitalism is something we need to grow beyond, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as is war. Well, it's it's structured on inequality. It re- relies on inequality to make to move it forward. And right. the one of the uh, more positive elements of people wearing things that all look very similar, to my mind, is that there are there isn't anybody in this room who can't afford to dress like that. There isn't anybody mm. who feels the need to. Um, emphasize their wealth by dressing more dramatically than anyone else. Right. It's a, it's a wonderful moment in the film and it always moves me. And if I'm ever feeling particularly anxiety ridden about the state of the world, this is a wonderful film to put on to uh, just to depressurize some of that. Mm. Um, and now I'm going to say something which is almost the polar opposite of what we've just been saying <laughs> and could even come off as mean. So I'm going to try my level best not to be mean and uh, just say that there is an extra on the UK Blu-ray, which I don't think is the uh, same as the one in America. I think it's it's a Momentum in the UK and MGM in, in America. Um, so it has a different mix of uh, extras. The extras on the UK disc are frankly shocking. It feels like they, they told a, a, an office full of boobs, like three dudes, go away, make some stuff that we can shove on the Blu-ray, and we'll give you a £1,000. And they they went away and they made this horseshit, um, including like this sort of like almost fake documentary by Ken Burns about the various um, uh, historical figures with some ever so slightly racist overtones to it. Oh, dear. Uh, And and it used production photos. And uh, one of them was... One of them was just like pages from the script and uh, pages of the original notes, and just it just shows you them as photos. I'm like, couldn't you just look through these and say, isn't it interesting how originally da da da? It's like, no, here you go. And it's like someone holding up the uh, script to you. Do you like that? How about that? And it's like, there's no context whatsoever. But one of the pieces is a, 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 a lesson in how to play air guitar by two world champion air guitarists. And I was like, well, this is going to be silly. And then they started talking, and I realized, oh, my God, this is either one of the most embarrassing things I've ever watched, or it's a piece of comedy genius done so deadpan, (laughs) it would make Christopher Guest go, wow, how'd you do that? Because these two dudes, and they are dudes, are talking about their... that their journey, like traveling around the world to air guitar championships and just traveling all over America. And they're like, you know, when, when you're out there and you've got the crowd in front of you and you're sort of like, you're playing notes. And like, I've played notes that you couldn't measure. Like, you know, I've played notes that no real guitarist has ever played. I'm like, whoa, this is brilliant. And then one of them is like... Seen this actually, now that you're talking about it. it, it honestly, it sounds like a Portlandia skit or something from yeah. the Mighty Boosh. It's but, the, the Rock Ness Monster is one of them, and the other one was <laughs> what was the name? Um, Bjorn oh, to Rock. Bjorn to Rock. There's lots of shots of them going, 
and just starts around and like the thing you got to look at is the face. You got to give them the. Uh, uh. I like. I find the one guy in the audience who's not getting off, and I make him get off. And it's like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I think I have seen this, and it is it is everything that you're describing yeah. and more. But it's real. I started looking it up, and there are real regional air guitar championships. And oh it's God, like, really? Wow. I, I was going to say this is the whitest thing you could possibly do. This is the most male thing you can possibly do, and this is the most single thing you could possibly do. And yet, the rock nest monster is Asian. And I was like, that's kind of cool. <laughs> like, they've got, like, 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 air guitar goes everywhere. <laughs> but air guitar is universal. I consider myself the second best air guitarist in the world. I discovered the talent of air guitar when my friend sent me a video clip of the 2003 world champion. I saw him online. I said, I can do that. So I picked up the air guitar and just did my thing. People often ask, like, you know, is, is if, if I'm playing air guitar, you know, and then some other musician is just playing guitar, what, what's the distinction? And, you know, people often, I, you know, I find it, I take it personally insulting when people say, you know, oh, well, do you play the real guitar, right? Because it's not, there's nothing more real about a wooden guitar than an air guitar, you know what I'm saying? So I would prefer to just say the air guitar or the guitar. It's, you know, it's just as simple as that. Well, I'm constantly practicing. Um, my, I'm constantly strumming and practicing songs in my head. But training, I'm not sure because I did just pick it up and it just sort of came naturally. There's no, you know, training camp. You can't go to air guitar school. But, you know, the magic of air guitar is that it really is, it comes from within, you know. Every good air guitarist knows that. Um, the kind of training that I've undergone is really kind of a, you know, it's, it's a journey that I've gone on. Uh, I, I, I study moves of, of the greats. My thing is that I just go all out, balls to the wall, one minute of just pure energy. And uh, that's something that I've been able to hone that seems like a lot of other people just can't do. What sets Bjorn apart is, uh, is dedication. I mean, I've, I've traveled all over the world for air guitar. I've, I've air guitared at the Roxy in Los Angeles, I've air guitar in New York City, Denver, uh, Finland, you know. And I think that that's, you know, to be a true, you know, professional air guitarist like myself, you really have to be willing to, you know, sacrifice your friends and your family and your, your, your kind of, you know, your dignity, really, to go out there and, and share air guitar with the world. I'm a big fan of, of Nietzsche, uh, the, the nihilist writer, um, you know, mostly because he's, he's writing about nothingness. And I think that that's a very good way to kind of get your head inside what it takes to be a professional air guitarist. You have to believe in nothing. And that's, uh, so he's, you know, he's my primary influence. Other than that, you know, Jimmy Page. How does one prepare to get up on stage in front of hundreds, thousands of people to shred the air. Um, I find it helpful to do a little bit of yoga, some deep breathing, um, you know, tune into your inner air guitar. Step two, pick your instrument. Is your air guitar a single neck? Is it double neck? Do you have a whammy bar? I do. Do you have thick strings, thin strings? 
What's the shape? What's the size? Is it, is it, is it a flying V? Is it uh, 12 string? You have to decide that. You have to know that before you get on stage. I have this custom made BC Rich New Jersey Beast slash Gibson Les Paul slash Dan Electro. It's my own custom thing. You won't be able to get it. Step three, find your look. First of all, you gotta get your hair in order. Do you look like a rock star? Will ladies look at you and say, that is a rock star. I see him walking down the street. I wanna have sex with him. This is important. Here. Step five, the face. Very important. You gotta let your audience know how you're feeling with your face. Your body motions, good. Your facial expressions, better. There's the look of surprise. There's the, I'm gonna rock you. There is, you know, the, uh, the look of seduction. There's the kind of, you know, the overbite look. These are all important faces. Uh, I suggest you sit down in front of your mirror and try them yourself. Step seven, how do you book your first air guitar performance? Well, the key thing is really to check out in your local city, your local listings, where is there an Arioke? Step number nine, road trip it on down to, uh, to New York City, to Los Angeles, to Denver, to Chicago, compete in an air guitar competition. Uh, you will lose because I'll be there, but you will not be disappointed. You'll be a better man for it. So yeah, I mean, I remember when people, I, I was really into rock band, uh, Guitar Hero first and then rock band, and there was a lot of sure. like pushback from uh, musicians who were like, these kids with their rock band, that's not really playing music. And I was like, no, it's playing a video game and imagining you're rocking out. But right. I can't imagine just like pretending to play the guitar and like whatever I do is not making any difference to the music. I think <laughs> that people should pay attention to this and bring forth the lessons into our current era and I think people should go to the air hairdressers <laughs> and I think they should go to air restaurants. Uh, yeah, because yeah. like he was saying, you know, like you, you could like you, you could kiss everyone in that order. You just air kiss them. I was like, well, Sharon said, well, watch out. You'll get them all air pregnant. Then you got to play air alimony. You're going to be back and forth across the country with your various air children that you've sired over your various tourings. You know, air groupies, left, right, and center, just doing air this and that to you. How's it going, ladies? You're the ones we saw in front of the castle. I am Ted of San Dimas, and uh, I bring to you a message of love. <laughs> from who? From, from myself. And what is this message you speak of? Uh, lyrics, dude. Recite him some lyrics. Oh, you beautiful babes from England, for whom we have traveled through time. Will you go to the prom with us in San Dimas? We will have a most triumphant time. <laughs> Way to go. What does your father want? I want to be married to horrible old men today. No way! Will you help us escape? 
So the princesses in the 20th century. <laughs> now, logically speaking, Elizabeth and Joanna would have had to deal with more than just credit cards. What would be required to acclimatize the medieval babes to San Dimas of 1988? I mean, I have to assume, and I thought about this last night, <laughs> that on the trip from medieval England to San Dimas, 1988, they probably made a pit stop to the future where there could where they could get all of their vaccinations and be decontaminated <laughs> mm-hmm. so that so that they didn't both immediately die of whatever, you know, whatever Common cold, basically. Disease, yeah. and also, I don't know, bring the plague to San Dimas. Yeah, I was going to say them. Bill and Ted get scrofula from them. So. <laughs> That's the sequel that never got made because Rufus yeah. was clever enough to make sure that they were decontaminated and indeed vaccinated. Exactly. Vaccines, folks. They work. Oh, God. I do wonder how the princesses got by in 1988 because they were kind of left with Bill and Ted, almost like pets, although I'm not sure who was whose pets. But uh, like they would have been effectively being having to be shown everything by these two guys. But the fact right. that... They treat everybody mostly the same. Like the, the, the way they talk to Socrates is much the same way as they talk to their teacher, is much the same way as uh, they talk to Beethoven. You know, and, and, and they, they have a, a level of cheery courtesy with almost everything. It's, they're almost courtly in their posturing, <laughs> which, which probably helped in, in general. Definitely. And there's no judgment. There's no there's, again, nothing but empathy when they're dealing with anybody here. So it would have been like they would have had no issue explaining literally anything to these princesses Mm. as long as, you know, they themselves understood it. Like there wouldn't be any like, oh, you don't you don't know what this is or you don't. How how did you live without running water or anything like that? It was Mm. it would just be like, this is a toilet. When you go, you push this and it pushes everything away. (laughs) These are the three seashells. (laughs) And they would also they would take joy in the things that Joanna and Elizabeth were expressing amazement at. And like, oh, wow, this isn't something we've ever come across before. And dude, it's just cotton candy. Yeah. But they're not they're not cynical. They wouldn't pour right. cold water on any of mm. those enthusiasms. Yeah, it, it wouldn't be dude it's just cotton candy. It would be like, "Oh, cotton candy is kind of awesome." <laughs> <laughs> like like you said, they they would they would experience all of that joy with them and yeah. through them. Mm. Yeah. They have a vitality about mm. them. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum, Ted's father has a weird relationship with his son and seems to relate to the world through the lens of his own shame. Discuss. Oh, <laughs> oh man. I mean, uh, Dr. Frude talks about it pretty well at the end, essentially, right. that, you know, Ted's father is manifesting all of his fear of failure and his perceived failures Mm. by taking everything out on Ted and expecting him, like raising him as a, a, trying to raise him as a military brat. Mm. And, you know, you can see that, you can see that in the way that he interacts with really any authority figure where, you know, when, when uh, his history teacher, whose name is escaping me all of a sudden, um, Yes, when uh, Professor Ryan 
is in well, when they're in the classroom and and Professor Ryan is like stand up son and he immediately like is up bolt yes, upright yeah and and is like yes sir exactly like yeah. he that's how he interacts with authority because that's the way that his dad is is running everything and it's like there's no there's no love in that relationship it doesn't seem uh there doesn't really seem to be anything but scorn and disappointment and it feels like again as as the good doctor said he's manifesting all of his failures Mm -hmm. and pushing them onto ted and sort of projecting all of his his self-loathing and self-disappointment onto his son but the fact that he constantly uh, threatens him with military school, you'd say that to a 12-year-old, not to a mm. 16, 17-year-old. It's, it's baffling. And yeah, this is what I said earlier. The, if he is that frustrated by his inability to shape Ted into something that he considers to be adequate, at this point, just give him two months and he is out of your hair. I almost feel <laughs> like around about the time he should have started doing that, it feels like Ted's mother was there. Either she died or she left, but she's not present. Mm. I, mm. I think it's more likely that she left, and that's part of mm. why uh, Mr. Logan feels that he is a failure. Yeah. Um, I also feel like because Ted takes so much of his flack, Deacon is shielded from a lot of it. Deacon mm. seems much mm. more mm-hmm. just a, a chill, normal early kid. teen who goes his own way and does his own mm. thing. Mm-hmm. He doesn't seem to be in, in uh, you know, in, in danger of being sent to military school. No. no. Right. Well, let's let's put a pin in that for the third movie. <laughs> That's, there's an interesting, uh, and I, I know I use the I word, but there's... I trust you to elaborate. That's that's an interesting uh, dichotomy there, and I don't want to go into it right now because mm-hmm. well, I mean yeah. it's it's Spoilers. in like the first ten minutes of the movie, so I guess maybe we can spoil that. No, nope, nope. Uh, <laughs> nope. Okay, hold it back. Never mind. Put a pin in put it. it. We'll hold it back. Just put just we'll put, put Deaky and put that <laughs> in there. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> Although Ted did steal Deaky's Easter biscuits. and made his little brother cry right so on the other hand missy seems to be the only woman from their time that the two of them relate to there's no like no other females that i can think of what does that mean for bill and ted because missy is quite a quite something (laughs) i mean i would say that 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 does speak to just sort of the, the time in which this movie was made Um, you, you have, there there are, you know, as much as I like the movie, right there, there are some, a a few moments throughout where you're just kind of cringy, like, all right. Yeah. There's, there's some, you know, some homophobia there that they just kind of casually throw out. There is Um, the F bomb that is the most cringe inducing, like right in the middle of the movie, almost at the exact midpoint, Mm -hmm. they just throw that out there. And it's obviously based on. Like their own, like just a little bit of toxic masculinity that's just kind of like sunk mm-hmm. in there mm-hmm. and it just sort of like explodes out of them and then they drop it immediately afterwards. Yeah. Right. But then the fucking it's... robots come back out with it in the second one. Well, that in, yeah. in this one And here, then they called the devil that. In, in this yeah. one here, it is that totally random, appears in the middle of a mid-80s movie that also happens in Teen Wolf that bears no resemblance to anything else that's going on in the film. Lifts right out of the movie. Absolutely, just snip, snip, gone. 
it is worth noting, and I think Jonathan's right that this is a this is a product of their you know of the time in which this movie was made. But it's not just it, it's not just Missy. Like Missy or the Missy is is the only one that Bill and Ted interact with directly from mm. from their time. But with the exception of Joan of Arc and the people in the future, every woman in this movie is an object of sexual desire. There, mm. there is, there is no, there are no women with that are serve any other purpose. The, the only other women with speaking parts, even, are the two girls in the mall, mm. and they're there for Billy the Kid and Socrates to hit on. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, there doesn't seem to be one thing that I would say is slightly positive about that portrayal, though, is there never seems to be any judgment of the women for that. Oh wait, wait, wait. Mm. Uh, the 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 girl who does the Marie Antoinette uh, uh, speech. Ooh, yes. Oh, yeah. Like, she knows yeah. a bit about history. Right. She's doing She's, stuff. She right, probably gives right. the best presentation apart mm. from theirs. Mm-hmm. And one of the three judges of those history presentations is a female. Yeah, she doesn't she's say like, anything. She doesn't say anything. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But yeah, that, that, she's that was why I said every woman was speaking part. Yeah, and there were plenty of girls in the audience of that particular show who right. just looked like normal girls who aren't there to be. Lusted after all, but the babes sure. do kind of get given to Bill and Ted at the end like prizes. It's like, well yeah. done. Here's two guitars and two women. <laughs> no, 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 no. You can That's, play them too. I, I wouldn't quite interpret it that way because ultimately, it's not as if Bill and Ted haven't met them already yeah, and no. formed a connection with yeah. them. This is about rebuilding that that having already right. met them and the girl's been interested in them. Plus, also they're in saving a shitty them point in from this a really room. horrible... Like, mm-hmm. yeah, would right. you like to be the prize of a couple of old feudalist yeah. shitheads? Also, one assumes that all these guys. the history books say, and then they married the two babes from uh, uh, medieval time, and Ruth is like, well, I guess I better get better them back. Better go get them. <laughs> yeah. But the, apparently um, that happens. Yeah, the, the, the lack of judgment that I think is there shows in the fact that Missy is portrayed as somebody who is very affectionate and very sexual and that's not nobody ever but also seems kind to of oblivious about that it. she is very oblivious about it but again a lot of the girls who oh. are portrayed as sex oh, objects oh it's are born sexy yesterday a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah a little bit a little bit they do emphasize that she has this th- i mean if, effectively what it seems to come down to is Missy has a thing for older men who wear cardigans Joan of Arc is also born yeah. sexy right. yesterday uh, she's yeah. Lulu Kind of, but because you've got to look at the way Joan is dressed, though. She is very genderless. She's got this uh, armour that goes right up to the neck and all of her is covered and she doesn't ever do anything physical that isn't, like, hitting somebody with swords or... (laughs) Aerobics? Really violent aerobics. aerobics. Sure, but even even in the aerobics scene, like, she's not wearing a leotard. She's in sweatpants and a a hoodie, basically. If you compare her to the woman who's leading the aerobics in the first place, Mm-hmm. She's doing the whole sort of big let's go, ladies, and V-neck mm-hmm. down to show the mm-hmm. cleavage, and Joan is just like determined face <laughs> twist, <laughs> jump. Yeah, they they definitely reiterate that Joan of Arc was a great leader yeah. for a good reason. Absolutely, and ultimately would be right. a complete violation of Joan of Arc's role in history yeah. and the things she yeah. did to show her as a sex object. There is a purity in her beauty. Yeah, indeed. Also, mm. she's seventeen. Mm-hmm. There's a, a 
degree yeah. to which they couldn't really get away with it. But the... Um, uh, Missy acts like a seven-year-old. No, we know she's older than these two and they're nearly 18. Yeah, a little so. bit, but... Right. Yeah, yeah. The, the guy she's with The age really difference old. is, is an issue. fucking creepy. Yeah, but at the same time, <laughs> really like is. I said, the, the way she behaves is like, that's her thing. And mm. ultimately they sit and observe it as, as like kids at a distance, mm-hmm. but not it's not something that they seek to take advantage of or um, or that she is uh, punished for or anything like that, which there's an awful lot of, of stories where that kind of behaviour would be um, treated in a much more judgmental way. But, yeah, most of the girls in this are sporting the whole um, updo ponytail on one side from the 80s, yeah. and leg warmers and off-the-shoulder sweaters, and mm. it's so painfully 80s. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, like the, the the Joan of Arc moment when she's sort of just busting in there to, to do the aerobics. Watching the scene where uh, Play With Me by Extreme gets played by Beethoven, it felt like either the studio or the writers heard that song and went, okay, so maybe if Beethoven came out of the past and played music today, it would sound like this. And then they mm-hmm. built the film around that concept and just <laughs> built outwards. It all just came from that one scene where wordlessly and smiling away, Beethoven starts fiddling with all of these awesome keyboards. But that scene, when I saw that on uh, late night TV, and I f- first saw this film for the first time, that was the one that cemented for me. Oh my God, I love this film. Just the, just the <laughs> whole, the, the madcap, super hair metal version of Beethoven sequence <laughs> while all of these historical figures are going crazy at a mall. I'm going to play you all of this now because most listeners won't even know this was an actual full-on song. It was on Guitar Hero 80s. If you want to skip past it, it's three and a half minutes long. But why would you want to skip past this? <laughs>
I just thought, I love this. And the moment, mm. that moment for Lyra was uh, Napoleon at Waterloop. Just that, right. that whole section where they, they really build up the tension where he's looking down the, uh, the, the the chute and like he seems scared and they play tense music and then the guy shoves him and it's, and he's screaming away but then it turns out he really likes it and it turns into a montage of him going back up. I think what might just seal the deal for little kids is seeing him argue visibly with a child saying, no, it's my turn to go next and the kid's yeah. shaking her head and just like, you know, like she seems to be winning this argument. So I think kids oh, would get an affection. I actually read that scene a little bit differently. All right. I, I, I read that that little bit mm-hmm. as she was scared to go down the slide, and he was talking about oh. how awesome it is. That is also good. Mm. I always I just thought he was that. persuading yeah. her to let him take her place in the queue. Yeah, he's such a dick. <laughs> he is such a dick. You're right. You're probably right. <laughs> but I like your. I like the idea that maybe he started growing and going. No, it is good. It's so magnifique. Right. <laughs> I want to know. I want to know how they shot those inner, like water slide scenes in 1988. Yeah. Like, I guess like a jump camera jump. on an inner tube, like a little rubber ring that he kept, took down with him. Okay. Yeah. I mean, they they slid the camera across the floor on Vaseline in the Evil Dead. That like, that was like <laughs> guerrilla filmmaking, the the, the okay. cheapest way to get a tracking shot. So it's possible they just got a slightly less good film camera for that bit. That could be bashed about a bit, put it in. But yeah, like, it wouldn't be waterproof. No. So no such thing as a GoPro. Oh, no, wait, wait. Uh, yeah. There must have been underwater cameras because yeah. they did. Un- yeah, that yeah. that will be what they use then. A, a relatively inexpensive underwater camera on an inner tube. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Um, honestly, though, this water loop section, I was also like. There's no way Napoleon's going around grabbing kids in this park <laughs> and running Jeez, up the I stairs know. with them. Uh, oh, it, it, wow. This stemmed from the <laughs> bit where that guy grabs Abraham Lincoln and starts trying to wrestle his hat off. I need the Lincoln hat and a stupid beard. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> and I don't think, like, if, if this guy's dressed as Lincoln and he wants to run off, then the guy behind the camera's like, okay, you do that, I'm going to call Paul Blart. But, <laughs> but no, they're really, like, manhandling them. And Sigmund Freud gets arrested for nothing. He's just got a corn dog. They're just like, well, he looks crazy like the rest of them. So, <laughs> like, does he look like a historical figure? I better arrest him just in case. He was right. definitely <laughs> trying something with those girls. Yeah, I love the fact that also, like, as he's talking to them and they're, and they're laughing at him, the corn dog starts corn to dog droop. <laughs> Drooping. I saw that too. Sometimes a corn Sometimes dog a corn is dog just a corn dog. Just a corn okay. Dog. <laughs> <laughs> a minute ago, you just said what the original inception of this was. What were you going to say? So, uh, not necessarily the inception of this movie, although it can get to that too, but the the characters, Bill and mm. Ted, actually started out as uh, a Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon's improv sketch. Oh, yes. Like, they said they, um, they, like, they hired out a club... Was it like a, a, a restaurant or a club or something? And they like everyone paid four dollars, and they got like did, they just did improv, right? And they they did improv as these two Whoa. nutty characters, yeah. And they did this they did this for like a year or two, and then at one point they were talking about like how would these characters react to historical figures, and so the the skit sort of transformed into hmm. Bill and Ted meet Napoleon, Bill and Ted meet you know whoever. Um, and they were talking to Chris Matheson's dad, who is famous author Richard Matheson. And oh, wow. he told them, he's like, 
this is a movie. You need to make a movie out of this. And that became Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. The next little factoid I've got is uh, is going to seem uh, minor compared to that, but I only noticed it last night because we had the subtitles on. Uh, do you know what the the two judges, along with Mr. Ryan, are uh, named while uh, the uh, kids are doing the history uh, projects? Oh no! What? Okay, Ward and Row. Ward and Row. Pamela Greer in Bill and Ted's mm-hmm. Bogus Journey is called Miss Ward Row. And she's the one that judges them and gives them a chance, or like, like judges that they are <laughs> suitable to go to the Battle of the Bands. It's so such a weird connection, and I don't think it's accidental. Also, we've got with those three, three elders standing in judgment, while when they go to the future, the trio there, they've already passed the test for them. Right. Mm. And I love the that the the little air guitar thing that they do there. That that is the is the polar opposite of the uh, world championship air guitar uh, dudes who are sort of <laughs> thrashing around on stage. There is an almost zen-like calm to the just strum once. It's the then, opening chords mm. of uh, I can see for miles. Or stairway to heaven. Yeah. Just the um, but then go. just when everyone comes out and does that at the same time they're harmonizing mm-hmm. with each other. That's it's just that the sway of the universe all at once. Mm-hmm. It's it's wonderful. Put a pin in that for the third show too. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We'll do. Mm-hmm. The sway of the universe. Um, <laughs> this is the future socialists want. I put that down on the, uh, <laughs> the thing there as well. Yeah. And uh, I also noted, and this is, oh, I've only got one little factoid left, so by all means, if you want to pepper in some extra stuff about Excellent Adventure, go for it. But that I was racking my brains for films before this with surfer dudes as your main characters. Um, and it was like, the, the, the film with the two Goombas, it, it, it happens. Like, see no evil, hear no evil occurred to me uh, with... Um, uh, Wilder and um, Pryor and they did like a bunch of movies together and and, and obviously you got like um, Abbott and Costello and Laurel and Hardy and you've got these this long history of double acts but they usually tend to be double acts where they're in somewhat opposition to each other like one of them's a neat right. freak and one of them's scruffy Bill and Ted don't contrast with each other and then you had the uh, idea that um, well effectively one of the reasons that their friendship dynamic works so well is because Technically speaking, they're both sidekicks. Neither of them are the protagonist of this movie. And as a result, the interactions that they have with each other are like the interactions they have with everybody else on a much more equal footing. So yeah. there's there's none of that competitive, I must be better than you, I must beat you. There's, I mean, even when they meet the princesses, there's no moment of right which one's yours it, it just mm-hmm. they automatically gravitate mm. to the one that gravitates to them mm. it, I mean that's unlikely I can't imagine situations where that would happen naturally yeah. but <laughs> in this story it makes sense and I was going to say this feels like ground zero for that kind of whoa surfer thing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles had its uh, it was adapted from a dark mirage comic black and white right. and just not very like oh whoa pizza yeah. That happened in uh, late 1987. 
when mm -hmm. this would have been just about to start filming. This actually came out, it was made during 1988, it came out in February 1989, so there was enough time for them to have seen at least the initial miniseries of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles mm -hmm. and go, oh, Michelangelo! But if after that, it was like Denver the Last Dinosaur and fucking like all of these, <laughs> um, like, uh, uh, Paulie Shaw in Encino Man, like, uh, th th like suddenly they were everywhere. As we've already elucidated, that the philosophy that they kind of go through, that kind of almost Taoism of, of just sort of allowing the universe to flow around them, and that thus they don't get horrendously frustrated. They do come up against, especially in the second one and the third mm. one, see, like mm -hmm. walls that they feel like they can't scale over. But it just seems to be like, we can't make it work, Ted, as opposed to just really getting embittered about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Jonathan I, as well. Like, I feel like we've been talking over you so much, but like, uh -huh. if you want to just go for it, go for it. <laughs> oh no, no, no! I, I, I feel like you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm the uh, silent Bob to to Jesse's Jay, except that you know, <laughs> man, that's good he, for podcasting. <laughs> it, it's not. I, I'm not suddenly profound, so <laughs> I'm, I'm going to discount Silent Bob, who themselves summed up as Bill and Ted meet Cheech and Charm. Oh, <laughs> wait a true. second, actually, that I suppose. I'm not familiar with Cheech and Chong. Are they massively different to this? I don't know Cheech and Chong I'm very not well. super familiar I, either. I they didn't travel through I mean, time. I don't it's, care it's for Cheech little, and Chong. I mean, I would say Cheech and Chong, from what I know, is 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 more into like this. It's, it's stoner culture, right? Yeah. It's 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 explicitly, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. So, which I feel like, you know, some of the some of the interactions may may be similar um, on the surface, but the the sort of you know, generally what's driving it is different. I was curious about, you know, whether, like, the, the link between Bill and Ted and uh, Wayne's World, which came out a few years later, right? And also has, like, mm. you know, but I don't know when, I don't know when the skit started on, on Saturday Night Live. I know the movie came out in 92, uh, um, but, you know, you've got... Considering a, how a fast Saturday Night Live move, uh, moves, I would imagine two months before they started filming the film. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but it's also yeah. You know, you've got you've got two buddies who you know are are kind of you know very in, into rock and roll and you know hang out in a garage are a little a little immature, right? Mm -hmm. um, a little dopey, but you know, but 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 I feel like the the tone is different. But you also kind of get this this sort of the way that they they play off each other. Like I do wonder, you know, like how much how much. If any, was there was there that influence, uh, you know, carried over to, to Wayne's World and those two characters? Mm. I think the biggest difference between Wayne's World and Bill and Ted is, like Sharon was saying, Garth uh, is the know, sidekick there. Right, Garth is very. It's mm. not. It's not Wayne and Garth. It's mm. Wayne's World. Wayne yep. is the yep. protagonist. Here, yeah. Whereas you know, Bill and Ted are both are they're on equal footing, and there's mm. definitely a power dynamic between Wayne and Garth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh my god, they're Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, especially <laughs> in the third film. Wow. Yeah. What's you're exactly <laughs> right. Maybe Ted's dad is the Hamlet in this picture in this uh, in this story. Mm, maybe the throne of Denmark is Missy. <laughs> And well, everybody makes, sits on it by the end. That makes Dicky Fortinbras. <laughs> okay. That's enough spoilers for for for, for uh, the third film. But go out and see it, folks. And well, don't, no, no, no. Opposite. Stay in and see it, folks. Stay in and watch it. Yeah, it is wonderful. Yeah. I'm just checking out. Whoa, uh, the Wayne's World first SNL sketch date. 
1988. Before this, shit. Oh, no. <laughs> mm, mm, okay. All right, never mind. All right. You can just cut that whole thing out. No, 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 no. We need to teach people history. Because that, that's a that's a cutting class. Yeah, no, 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 no. Because because of you know people like Beethoven and Genghis Khan and Socratic method, we realize the world is full of history. God, when I watched that this time around, I uh, uh, realized, oh shit, they are flunking so hard. I shamefully attempted to blag a presentation uh, one time at theater, and it, it was maybe the most crucifying, embarrassing moment of my life, trying to explain Brechtian method without really knowing all that much about it. Bad idea, Alex. Dumbass. I, I didn't, Don't ever do that again. And I never did. I didn't notice. I didn't notice until this rewatch that that Ted is Kaiser Sozaying off of the chalkboard behind oh, yeah. him. Yeah. When he's trying to get that scene. Like he avoids Socrates and goes straight for the in parentheses underneath Socratic method. Socratic method. Exactly. It's actually, I honestly recommend, especially if you've got a commentary, uh, watching this film with the uh, sound off or, or just play your favorite music because you notice all kinds of things. Like, this film is clearly, um, you know, against capitalism, but they'll take a few bucks from kettle chips if you give them, <laughs> give them half a chance. <laughs> School of Movies is... Oh, I can't do the whole thing like Bill and Ted. School of Movies is funded by Patreon. I, I, that, I, that doesn't even sound like that. Our $15 sponsors get credit every episode. So a most excellent thank you to... Oh, this is embarrassing. I can't do this. Aaron Lecluse. Oh, yeah, nope. That's not happening. Abel Savard. <laughs> Abel Savard. Alex Outridge. Angus Lee. Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Evan Jankowski, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, the totally excellent time traveler Jesse Ferguson, Joe Gasiga, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joseph Gluck, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksh, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Scott Jacob, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. We love you the most. And I, I think that'll do it for Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. We are going to be back next week with the sequel that nobody seemed to like, except for all of us, since <laughs> I asked the whole cast of uh, Recorded Tomorrow, so which, if you're going to rank your Bill and Ted films that you want to talk about the most, which would you put at the top? And they were like, Bogus Journey, Bogus Journey, Bogus Journey, Bogus Journey. Are you kidding me? <laughs> So we'll be back with that next week with the uh, the person who won that particular place. But before we go, could you tell the folks at home about your show? Sure. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan and I host a podcast called Recorded Tomorrow. It is all about uh, time travel in media and how to use it as a, you know, how to use it in stories. It, it started out as kind of a writer's tool and since then has sort of evolved into uh, an analysis type 
show not unlike this one, but with a time travel bent. So that is recorded tomorrow, folks. Track that down immediately. And uh, what's your favorite episode that, like, if you were going to say one episode, apart from the Paradox one, what would it be? (laughs) Uh, I honestly, uh, it's particularly topical, but uh, I would say my my current favorite episode is actually the one that we just recently recorded about uh, Bill and Ted Face the Music, where we actually, we, we got to talk to Spiros Mikalakis, who was the science consultant for the movie, and it was mind-bending. So uh, don't listen to that one until, you know, for two more weeks until after you listen to this version. But then, you know, listen to this, and then go listen to that. Um, If you want something right now, I've done a number of short stories that I'm pretty proud of. And uh, I think probably my favorite other than those is the one where we had Emma Larkins on to talk about actually starting a story where she she had a kernel of an idea and the three of us talked it out and ended up with a like full uh, synopsis of events where and and as a starting place and you know what you know making the decisions early on like what type of time travel is this how does it work who knows about it? What are the complications? And uh, it 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 was great. So, what episode would that be for people to uh, listen to to see that unfold? Uh, I don't remember the oh, number damn. or the date, but it was called starting. <laughs> it was called starting your story. There you go, starting your and story. I can I can look it up actually yeah. if you want. If you go for that. On that note, I will say uh, a couple of years ago, I decided uh, that one of the future books uh, from the New Century Multiverse is going to be time travel, and then I came up with, wait a second, that does not work with what I've done. <laughs> and then I talked with uh, Jesse about the possibilities, and we kind of hashed out a way that it could be done. And then like, uh, it solidified in my mind over as time went on. And then, I think I've mentioned this before, another fairly high-profile movie did precisely that. And now it's <laughs> going to look like I copied them. But I do assure you, folks, we came up with this idea, maybe not first, but independently. It's, it's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jonathan, you should plug something that you've done for Geek Dad. Thank you, Jonathan. Oh, something I've done for Geek Dad. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I gotta think about this. Uh. Well, while he, while he's well, thinking about that, okay. uh, it's the the Emma Larkins uh, episode is episode thirteen from January of okay. last of this. By the time you read, by the time just say the year, it'll be Jan- January of twenty twenty. So January of last year. Oh, so the last moments before everything went to absolute mm, shit. Mm-hmm. Like it yes. was, it was nearly absolute shit. It was like the 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 needle was just approaching. It was like terrible, terrible, utter shit, utter shit. And then it was like yep. January twenty twenty, absolute shit. <laughs> so that's when you know, folks, to go back and listen to the uh, to uh, to was it how to start your story. It's the last one from the before times. Okay. <laughs> I was just going to say that. Yes. Well, we'll listen to that while you're trying to before decode times. the three seashells. And uh, oh, you guys have got to come on to when we talk about Demolition Man at some point because hundred percent. Yeah. Oh, I have I have not seen Demolition. Man. Oh wow, it's Ooh. it's fun, but you'll be like, wow, who made this and what axe did they have to grind? Seriously. <laughs> okay. Jonathan, um, geek dad. So, Geek Dad, yeah. so I, I, I write for a site called Geek Dad. Um, I cover mostly books and board games there, um, in, including I do a um, 
Well, it used to be a weekly column, but of course, 2020 happened. So it's, you know, when I, when I get around to it, but a weekly column called uh, stack overflow about books. And, um, I do have a number of them that are all about time travel books because I like reading time travel stories. Um, Hmm. and, uh, you know, hoping, hoping at some point we'll, we'll get to some of those, although it's a lot harder to say here, Jesse, both of us are going to read this book as opposed to both of us are going to watch this movie. Yeah, uh, yeah we found There's some, yes. some, some great books in there. Um, there you know, one, one of my recent um, you know, discoveries was that, uh, that was Jughead's Secret Time Police from <laughs> Archie and Jughead that, uh, that in the, I think, late, no, early 90s, there was a whole series of stories about Jughead being recruited to be a secret time police where he, he he had like a time machine embedded in his his hat and he went around solving you know time related <laughs> crimes and uh, and then they've they've done just recently a, a like a reboot or a um, you know in in the new the new Archie and Jughead series you know Jughead there has has also created a time machine and and you know it's it is pretty fascinating because one, just because it's Jughead as the main character, <laughs> as the main character, and as a you know, like a romantic lead in his story. So, um, I am so excited to track that down, and we are going to talk about it on our show once I do. All right, all right. <laughs> Speaking of geeked out thinking about it, there was a, a point when Lyra turned a corner of a certain age. I can't remember when or when it was, but it's when I realized she got time travel. And I was like, okay, we're going to have some fun now because um, then I could start showing her things like Back to the Future, A Flood of the Navigator. And um, it just it felt like once a kid gets smart enough to be able to think, at least in that version of fourth slash fifth dimensionally, um, then we, you know, all, all kinds of new story types can, can mm-hmm. occur because it means that they're also aware of the future, present and past and yeah. in a... You know, it opens it, up all those alternate world yeah. concepts. And Bill and yeah. Ted ain't a bad one. Yep. True story. Apart from that yep. F-bomb, which you're going to have to sort of get up and go, would you like a bag of kettle chips? <laughs> In the middle of that point. So, yeah. So let's leave you with maybe the only end credits for a movie that seems to be set to a cheery song about a threesome. Two heads are better than one. <laughs> We will be back next week. I've been Alex S. Preston Esquire. And I've been Sharon Theodore Logan. Be excellent to each other and party on, dudes.
Oh. And also, like, like Jonathan can answer, too. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, John, Jonathan, oh, okay. <laughs> did, do you love Bill and Ted, little boy? Sorry, that's so creepy and weird. Wow. <laughs> okay. Where did that come from? I, okay, right. Oh, Let me just backpedal a little there. Okay, 